Tom Vilsack was the governor of Iowa from 1999 until 2007, before serving as President Obama's Secretary of Agriculture. Since 2017, he has served as the President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, a trade group representing the interests of U.S. dairy producers. Today, he discusses the unique impact the pandemic is having on agriculture, farmers, and rural communities. Let's listen in. Many of you will, will recognize uh, Sec Secretary Tom Vilsack, who's Secretary of Agriculture under uh, President Obama. He was also a two-term governor um, in, in Iowa, mayor, mayor uh, state senator. So ha has really accomplished a lot in, in his career. I think now you're um, the president of the Dairy Export Council, if I've got it right, um, sure. Secretary. And I think you're here to talk to us today um, about um, um, rural, the rural economies and, and, and agriculture and what, what the farmers and what um, what's going on there and what we can do to, to support that community through this period. Great. Well, thanks very much. I look forward to uh, obviously the questions that uh, may be forthcoming, but uh, let me make some introductory remarks about the cascading effect and impact of this uh, pan pandemic. Uh, obviously, when it first began and decisions were made to shut down schools, that became incredibly disruptive to certain aspects of the rural economy, particularly the dairy industry. When you think about 30 million uh, children who go to school every single day and have school lunch or school breakfast and have access to a half a pint or pint of milk, and that milk is not gonna be consumed at school because schools are closed. Uh, and there is really no process by which whole scale, uh, large scale uh, meals could be provided to, to youngsters. Uh, you saw a significant hit to the dairy industry immediately. Uh, that was followed by the decision made by a number of uh, senators, or a number of governors rather, uh, to begin the process of shutting down uh, state economies. Uh, and it started primarily with uh, places where people would congregate. Uh, and the bottom line was, uh, we saw a shutting down of bars and restaurants, fast food uh, operations, all of which represents uh, a significant part of the food service industry that U.S. Uh, farmers rely uh, significantly on in terms of the sale of, of, of product. Uh, that was followed by uh, travel being restricted uh, in a sense. And so hotel uh, occupancy went down and a significant uh, hit, uh, ultimately roughly 50% of the food manufacturing industry got hit uh, in a relatively short period of time. Uh, at that point, the retail uh, stores began to feel a bit of pressure. Uh, people came in thinking that there was going to be a shortage of food. Uh, so there was a run on food. Uh, empty shelves uh, created the image and impression that we were short on food, which exacerbated the, uh, the call for food. Um, and, and the result was that there, there began to be a significant uh, misconnection or disruption between where food was being produced and where food was needed. Uh, about the time that we got the retailers calmed down to the point where they were no longer restricting people from purchasing so many loaves of bread or so many gallons of milk, um, we faced uh, the ultimate result of, of the shutdown of the economy, which was that people became, lost their jobs. Uh, and we saw a sudden, swift 26 million or so Americans lose their jobs, and that uh, number obviously will continue to rise for a period of time. So they were in a position uh, not to be able to purchase as much food at retail locations as they may have been before they, uh, before they lost their jobs. That put a heavy uh, burden on food banks uh, and pantries around the country. Uh, Feeding America represents uh, maybe 90% of the food banks and pantries in the, in the country. They saw an immediate increase of 30 to 40% demand for product. Most of the product that the food banks receive in the form of donations comes from retail. Well, the problem is that retail didn't have any uh, uh, didn't have any uh, food to donate. So increased demand and reduced supply. At the same time, that sort of uh, uh, circumstance confronted the food banks. Uh, farmers were seen by the media. Uh, essentially uh, plowing over fields or dumping uh, milk uh, because they could not donate, couldn't, uh, there's a financial disincentive in the system 
for them to donate uh, food. Um, it costs more to produce it and process it than it does to dump or destroy it. Uh, so we had this circumstance occur. The same time that's occurring, uh, about 30% of all American agricultural production goes into the export market. Well, the export market, not only roiled by, by trade uh, disruptions, but also by the fact that this virus was hitting all of our key markets in the same way with the same impact and effect as here. Schools were shutting down, food service was ending, uh, tourism was ending, uh, hotel occupancy was down, and food consumption uh, patterns radically changed. So we're now in a situation where uh, farmers are stressed because markets have collapsed. Uh, the dairy industry, uh, the one that I'm most, most uh, uh, engaged in, has seen a, 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 a marked reduction uh, from what were pretty good prices at the beginning of the year for the first time in four to five years. Uh, dairy farmers were beginning to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, they have lost, uh, in, in about a four to six week period, they have lost about $8 billion net to their bottom line uh, in declining prices. And of course, that number is just going to continue to grow. Uh, the same thing is true uh, in some of the other commodities, especially, uh, particularly especially crops. The protein industry, meat, uh, poultry, uh, pork, beef, now being hit not so much by what I just described, but by the fact that the virus has now entered into the meatpacking processing facilities and has resulted in a shutdown of some of those facilities, a further disruption in the supply chain. Um, for whatever reason, uh, those who are operating and running uh, processing facilities did not fully appreciate or did not take aggressive action at the beginning of this virus uh, to slow production lines down, to separate workers, uh, to provide protective equipment, uh, to, to really focus on encouraging those who weren't feeling well to leave and go home and not to come to work. Uh, in fact, in some cases, the, it was the opposite. People were uh, potentially encouraged to come to work, uh, even though they didn't feel well. So this is a, 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 an incredibly complex system uh, that has been disrupted significantly and in all probability in a permanent way. Uh, there are primarily two issues that have to be addressed in order to stabilize the circumstances that, uh, that, we, that consumers confront and that producers and processors confront. Um, first, I, I think it's fair to say that we have to figure out, continue to figure out ways in which people particularly those who have lost their jobs, are in a position to purchase more. Because obviously, if they can purchase more, uh, then that sort of restores some of the, uh, of the uh, disruption uh, that has occurred with food service uh, going down until such time as food service comes back online. That means taking a look at ways in which uh, SNAP benefits, the, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, can be increased to the point where people receive additional benefits above and beyond what they would normally receive. There's some reluctance on the part of some uh, in the administration to do that, but I think at the end of the day, uh, whatever the next uh, relief bill is, it passes, I would, I would imagine, will likely contain an increase in SNAP. I should point out that in most emergency circumstances, when a hurricane hits or a tornado hits and a, and a community is devastated, SNAP benefits automatically increase. Um, to a point for a period of time that allows people to sort of get over the hump. Senator Bennett uh, is working on a pretty interesting idea uh, that would provide for an automatic trigger uh, for that automatic increase to occur. Uh, right now, it, it requires congressional action, uh, and, and the reality is oftentimes that's difficult to get um, because there's some opposition to, to, uh, to increasing SNAP benefits. So in some way, shape, or form, um, Increased SNAP benefits, making sure the stimulus checks get out, making sure the unemployment offices are open to the point where people's unemployment compensation requirements and requests can be processed. All that designed to provide resources for people to be able to purchase product while we begin to ramp back up on the food service side. Uh, then secondly, the disconnect uh, between the, the, the food banks that have tremendous demand and will continue to have demand and the fact that their principal donor the retail community is not going to be in a position for an extended period of time to provide that level of help. There needs to be a new model, if you will, created in which farmer-led co-ops and producer groups can be linked more directly in terms of donations to the food bank system. That's going to require figuring out ways in which 
the financial disincentive for donation can be removed to at least a point where farmers believe that it's in their long-term financial best interest to donate than it is to not uh, to dump or destroy. Uh, the administration is currently working uh, on a proposal in which uh, the country has been divided into seven regions. Uh, you as a company or an entity could in theory bid on any one or all of those regions uh, for the right to assume responsibility for collecting dairy products, specialty crops, fruits and vegetables, and certain uh, protein products for purposes of placing them in a box uh, that would be then delivered, a series of boxes being delivered to a central distribution system that would service food banks and pantries in the region that you are bidding on. Um, it's gonna be interesting to see. Uh, the administration has set aside $100 million a month for, uh, for purchases of dairy products, $100 million a month for specialty crops and $100 million for uh, protein products uh, for these boxes. They're gonna do this over a period of six months. That's $1.8 billion that they have readily available to spend and invest. They were given authority by Congress to spend and invest $1.3 billion. So there's another $1.2 billion that currently is un, uh, unutilized by the department. Uh, to give you a sense of this, uh, the magnitude of this, just in dairy alone, and dairy is a relatively small part of, of American agriculture, to actually get these farmers to a point where they can sort of stay on the farm, it would probably require a program for dairy alone of $500 million a month for that six-month period. So the entire $3 billion that has been allocated by Congress could be utilized for just one of many commodities. So there's a tremendous need. Uh, the concern with the box program is that there may be a significant premium paid to an entity that has the capacity to purchase, assemble, package, and deliver these boxes to multiple locations simultaneously. And whether or not the money that was designed to buy product to reduce the surplus to bring stability to the prices, to keep farmers on the farm and food, food in the food banks, whether a portion of that, a significant portion of that 100 million will be used on a monthly basis just simply to pay for logistics. There are other folks who are working uh, in, in localities across the country in small projects uh, that are making a difference for a handful of folks, or, or maybe even a, a large number, maybe hundreds or thousands of people, but we're obviously dealing with a situation impacting millions of Americans. Um, so uh, th there needs to be that addressed. And the final comment I'll make, and then I'll, I'll be, try to answer any questions that you might have, um, is that, two final comments, is uh, on the food bank issue, another problem is that they would love to be able to collect food that is being donated, but they also have the inability to store it or refrigerate it properly, simply because they don't have the infrastructure uh, uh, necessary. So uh, the question would be whether or not current infrastructure that's being underutilized could be uh, uh, called into, 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 into uh, action uh, to, to address that deficiency uh, until such time as perhaps a, an infrastructure fund could be set up for food banks that would allow them to extend their refrigeration capacity or their storage capacity. Uh, one idea would be if Major League Baseball doesn't start, and hasn't won't likely start for the next couple of months in most of the cities in, in, in Major League Baseball, could those ballparks, could those football stadiums that may not be used, could those hockey arenas that aren't being used, the basketball courts that aren't being used, could those essentially be uh, called into action uh, to provide storage? Because obviously they deal with significant numbers of, of concessions. Uh, so they obviously have storage capacity and refrigeration capacity. That's just one idea. But that infrastructure issue needs to be addressed uh, in order for uh, the system uh, to be more resilient in the future. As it relates to the rural economy, uh, I, would, I, I would just make one observation. I think the time has come, um, and we're dealing with a major problem here, and I think we're seeing the consequences of, of not really paying attention to the resiliency of our system and the flexibility and the diversification of our system. I think as we deal with another big issue on the horizon, and that is climate, uh, I think there's an opportunity here 
for us to, to create a, a different type of agricultural and rural economy, one that isn't necessarily dependent on the sale of commodities, which because of the nature of a commodity brings a commodity price and is subject to significant disruption, either because of government policies on trade or because of a pandemic that shuts down part of the supply chain. Is there a way of creating more diversification within agriculture uh, in terms of conservation, in terms of eco environmental services, in terms of converting agricultural waste into a variety of other products, bringing manufacturing into a rural area that allows agriculture and farmers and landowners to have multiple income sources so that if one source gets disrupted, another source at least keeps you keeps you going. Uh, so I think long, long term, um, policymakers, administrations will need to think about how you might be able to rebuild that type of revitalized rural economy. And I think if you did, um, you would probably see significant reductions in some of the problems that plague rural America, high poverty levels, uh, high abuse levels, um, uh, an aging population, declining population, uh, more stress on cities. I think a lot of that could be alleviated if you had a, a a rural economy that was more innovative uh, and more focused on this issue of climate, uh, which will also uh, create a more resilient system. So let me stop there. With, uh, hopefully that's uh, helpful. Um, but if not, I'll be glad to answer questions. Thanks for that, uh, Secretary Vilsack. I think that's a really good summary of, of the issues and, and some potential uh, solutions out there. Let's turn to some questions from the group. Um, Tom McInerney, I think, had a question. Tom? Yeah, thanks, Craig, and uh, good afternoon, Secretary. I knew you as Governor of Vilsack, and you know, I'm, I'm good friends of Fred and Charlotte Hubble, so uh, I was involved with Equal of Iowa and uh, ING back in the day when you were governor, and supported Fred in his campaign last year, and also working with him on his uh, Better Democracy Pact. So good to, good to see you again. Uh, on on the hog farming, particularly in Iowa, I, I didn't realize you were, uh, had such a large market share, but my understanding is with the lack of demand that there's real a lot of pressure, both financially but emotionally, on uh, a number of the, the large farmers in, in Iowa due to uh, the issues with what to do with um, uh, hogs and, and the issue of potentially having to euthanize thousands of uh, thousands of them. So appreciate any comments uh, you can provide. Sure. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's more uh, not so much in the pork area uh, of a demand issue because it's the, the one bright spot on the export side, especially for pork, is a resumption of China purchasing uh, pork products from the U.S. under the under the Phase One Agreement. So it's not so much what's been disruptive for milk and some of the other commodities in pork. What is disruptive is the fact that a number of the processing facilities are having to shut down because you have 100, 200, 300 workers who have been impacted and affected by the virus. That's the problem. And that problem is only going to cascade. And, and, and it's one of the reasons why the president today uh, took, the, took a half step. I say a half step because he, he took the Defense Production Act and basically said, look, you guys got to stay in business. The second step needs to be you got to stay in business and at the same time you need to keep your workers safe because it's great for the president to order something to stay open, but if everybody's sick, there isn't anybody to process the hogs, right? So so they've got to take they got to take more aggressive action and they've got to slow the production line down because you can't handle as much as you would normally handle unless you have people scrunched together doing the inspections and the various things that they have to do to process. So you, you need to stretch it out a little bit, which means that you need to slow the line down. Well, when you slow the line down, obviously you can't process as much. So maybe you need to extend the workday. Maybe there's a little overtime that has to be paid. And part of what the government should probably be doing is working with the processing uh, industry, as they have with the airline industry and some of the other industries, to say, okay, here's X number of dollars to, to assist you during this period of time when, you're, when, when you may not be able to process as much, or you may incur significant expense because you've got overtime or you've got protective equipment you got to buy or whatever, or you got to redesign your line uh, so that they stay in business in, in a legitimate way. And then I think long-term, uh, this is an industry that probably, like many industries, 
uh, is going to probably take a look at its supply chain and make the decision that maybe they need to have fewer, that maybe they need to have more smaller plants rather than one or two large plants. Now that may, may mean that they may not be as profitable. It may mean they may not be quite as efficient, but they will be a lot more resilient uh, to future uh, impacts. And anybody's kidding themselves as they think this is the one and only pandemic we're gonna face. We're gonna face this quite a bit. So let's figure out a way in which we don't necessarily have to shut down an entire industry because one or two or three plants uh, in one location get impacted. I think that question of changes in supply chain, we've been hearing that across a couple different industries that we talk to and, and, and think that a lot of that's gonna have to be revisited um, in the future for, for more than one industry. Well, globally, uh, I should I say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but globally, there's no question that's going to happen. Uh, there are going to be shorter supply lines, and, and that's going to be, uh, for, American, uh, for American food processing, it's going to be an interesting set of issues, whether or not they are willing to invest in other locations at a time when people are saying, buy America, stay America, keep in America. And, you know, so there, there, there's, there, it's not going to be an easy uh, set of decisions that business leaders are going to have to make. Uh, I think Ted Ross had a question. Ted? How are you doing? Um, with the reduction in animals that we're, we're seeing and the, the uh, youth, euthanizing some of them, is there a second wave coming in the, uh, in the farm belt where the grain farmers next year are going to either have to cut back a lot or there's going to be excess uh, grain that, that's going to affect them in the same way that they're losing revenue on the, on the animals now? Well, that's already occurred um, for two reasons in the Midwest. I can't speak to other parts of the country, but in the Midwest, they were hit obviously uh, very hard by trade. Uh, and despite the trade one agree trade uh, phase one trade agreement with China, there's nowhere near the resumption of levels of, of trade to China of soybeans and other commodities that there was before the trade war was started. And now that China's economy is not as robust as it once was for, for reasons, uh, for obvious reasons, it is, it, is it is going to be interesting to see whether or not they can live up to the uh, promise to, to purchase $40 billion of agricultural commodities this year and, and 50 billion next year. So that was one hit. The second hit was the administration's position on ethanol uh, and the waivers that were sought by oil companies and, re and refineries. Uh, the administration's been very um, liberal in granting waivers to oil companies not to have to comply with the renewable fuel standard requirements. And that has impacted significantly a number of ethanol production facilities. Roughly 50% of the production capacity of that industry has been shut down or reduced. And now that people aren't traveling and now that gas, nobody's buying gas, um, the, the, the industry is, on, is in very, very difficult shape. Um, and has been uh, shut out, at, at least at this point in time, from any relief from the USDA, and has been shut out from any capacity to meet with White House officials to make the case that they are in the same boat that the oil industry was in uh, and needs help. So that's already occurring. Um, you know, uh, planning decisions for the most part have already been made. Um, and so whatever is likely going to be put in the ground is going to be put in the ground. Um, and there was there was already storage, so it, it's expected that commodity prices for those grain farmers aren't necessarily going to be uh, significantly uh, better uh, in the near term, uh, which obviously puts additional pressure on the rural economy. Okay, if not, let's go to Glenn Lowenstein. Thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. I thought that overview was clear and really important for us who don't understand why things are happening in your field. If I can ask two questions. One is, are we close to a food crisis? And, and what indicators would you have us look for? And the second is, you mentioned there will be some permanent change. How do you analyze what's temporary and permanent? And thank you for the two questions and thank you for your time. You bet. Um, You know, I, I don't think there's a food crisis in the, tr in the sense that, that we're not going to have enough food to feed Americans. 
And the reality is, as I, I think I said earlier, 30% of everything we grow prior to the, to the virus, 30% of it went in the export market. So we have the capacity to literally, and we are food secure. We, we are a food secure nation in the sense that we're able to produce enough to feed ourselves. The problem is that there are going to be places in this country where people in, who are in need aren't going to get the food. So for them, for their families, for those communities, yeah, there's a food crisis. Uh, and they are not food secure, they're insecure. That's why it's necessary, I think, to create a new model, a, a complementary model to the, to the existing way in which food banks received help and assistance to, diverse, diverse, uh, to disperse foods to, to needy families. Uh, I, I think we, we, we need to make sure that there are farmer-owned cooperatives and farmer-owned processing facilities that are, and, and other processing facilities that are directly connected to the food bank world, okay? Uh, that is, I'll just give you a dairy example. Dairy Farmers of America, largest uh, co-op in the uh, dairy co-op, one of the largest dairy, dairy co-op in the world, uh, looking for ways in which its processing facilities and its refrigerated trucks could be used to get product to food banks. Um, the reality is that unless food banks have resources, uh, they may not be able to pay DFA even a minimal amount for that milk. Well, if you can't pay a minimal amount for the milk, then DFA can't make can't make the decision to process it. If it can't make the decision to process it, it's going to tell that dairy farmer, "Don't send it to me. I can't use it." Dairy farmer can't sell can't tell the cow, "Hey, stop producing milk." Now the dairy the dairy farmer can over time sell his cows, reduce the herd, but that takes time, and there has to be a beef market to be able to do that. And if the processing facilities are shut down, there's no beef market. So it's, and if the export markets are, are down, there's no place to put the beef. So it, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, so the key here is to get that product that you are capable of producing to the people who need it. Right. And I, I'm not sure this box idea that the, uh, that the administration's got is going to work. Maybe it'll work. But my fear is a lot of money is going to go to the logistical aspect of this and not to purchasing product to stabilize the market. So I, I think that, so if you're looking for, uh, for signs of, of food insecurity, you need to look at, at your locale, you need to look at your, your area, and you need to pick up the phone and say to the food bank, how's it going? Uh, and they'll tell you, huge demand. Um, are you getting donations? Yeah. Are, what, are you, what are you needing? What are you missing? Uh, and then see if there's ways in which uh, there's a possibility of collaborating together and, and creating models that meet that need. Um, and I just was on a phone call for an hour and a half earlier today with uh, some key people in the ag industry, and, and they're trying to figure out how to set up a, a pilot. You know, if you had, you know, $25 million or $50 million, and you had Feeding America tell you that in three or four or five areas that uh, are service uh, several hundred pantries, this is the need. How would you create with those resources, eliminate the financial disincentive for donation, and create a, a comfort with that stream of distribution to that food bank from processing facilities? And I think if you did that and you figured out the most efficient way to do it and, and the logistics of it, you could have many, many, many of those projects as opposed to one or two large food service operations trying to do this thing nationally. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, in, in, in terms of temporary and, and uh, uh, you know, clearly the, the magnitude of the problem relative to food banks is temporary. In other words, this 26, we haven't had 26 million unemployed people in four weeks ever. So this is a new thing for us. Eventually, as the economy gets back on track, some, maybe most, but not all of those people are going to be back employed. So those numbers will start coming down. So in that sense, the, the magnitude or size of the problem will shrink. But the problem itself is likely to be more permanent because some of those people are not going to get their jobs back. Uh, the industry is going to realize that maybe our way of doing business needs to be changed in this new world. And so there's going to be the disruption. And with disruption, there's always... Uh, a, a lot of uncertainty and instability. Um, and I think that's going to be, that's going to be with us for a while. 
at the same time we're going through this, everybody in the world's going through the same thing. Um, and you're going to see, I think, uh, uh, there's going to be some countries are going to become very nationalistic and they're going to say, by God, you know, we don't want to depend on anybody. We're going to be self-sufficient. That's going to royal exports a little bit. Uh, some folks are going to say we can't just have one or two processing facilities in, in, in China and think we can service all of Asia. We're going to have to shorten the supply lines. We're going to have to have multiple locations. We're not going to do just-in-time inventory anymore. We're going, to, we're going to have to store and warehouse some of it for that rainy day. We have to go back to that process. Profits may not be quite as uh, significant as they once were, but, but, but we're going to be more resilient. And that resiliency th theme, I think, plays into the whole issue of we got mega issues here with climate pandemics. We need, to, we need to start really paying attention to resiliency in addition to trying to make the fastest buck and the biggest buck we possibly can. Uh, and that's a, that's a, mind, a mind shift uh, that is pretty significant and is going to have ramifications throughout the entire culture and throughout the entire globe. So, and I think that's permanent. Um, because I don't think this virus is, is unique. I think Mother Nature is going to figure out another virus and another virus and another virus, and then we're going to get really good at dealing with that. And then about that time, climate is going to come into play, and, and uh, people are going to be disrupted because the oceans are going to rise and coastal areas are going to be impacted, and there's going to be mass migration, and that's going to be a whole set of issues. So I think it's, you know, for me, it, and the last thing I'll say is, for me, I think it puts a premium hopefully, on competence, on, on people that have the capacity, uh, leaders that have the capacity to think ahead and to make the case that spending a few bucks now, even though it doesn't seem like it's appropriate, necessary, makes a hell of a lot of sense, especially once disaster strikes and you're better prepared for it. It's a long answer. I don't know if it's a complete answer or a good answer to your question, but that's the best I can do this afternoon. Thank you very much. Senator Bill, like I said, um, uh, one of the things that's been talked about has been to have restaurants fill some of that need. And in the same way, you're helping two constituencies there. The food is, is getting the people who de so desperately need it, but you're also employing uh, people at the, uh, at the restaurants. Um, Jose Andres, through his World Central Kitchen, actually is, uh, is piloting a, a plan that gets it at $10 a meal, is distributing meals. He's going to start out in in Oakland, California, and that's well beneath what some of the municipalities seem willing to pay per meal in order to do that. And that could be something that that goes on, uh, um, you know, beyond just in events like this in order to better use capacity to have. Well, and that one of the things we tried to get the fast food industry to think about was to a conversion of their uh, facilities to assist in feeding children in the school. Uh, lunch program. I mean, the school lunch program is great because the kids are all in one place and they have a cafeteria and they stream through the cafeteria and we can have a discussion about the quality of the food that they eat. Got it. But, but in terms of the ease and efficiency of the system, you get a lot of kids fed in a relatively short period of time. Now these kids are scattered to the four winds. We have a summer feeding program, but man, you know, it's, you, it's impossible, uh, especially if you have shelter in place or if you have families that don't have public transportation or, or their own transportation, or they're a mile or two miles or six miles or 10 miles away from the, the, uh, the site of wherever they have to pick the food up. So, but, they're, but McDonald's is right down the street. So this I think is part of, of what I would like to see is, and maybe it's too late for this pandemic, but for future planning purposes, the Department of Agriculture should be convening the heads of all of these major food operations that have locations to say when this happens again and schools have to be shut down for four weeks or six weeks or two months, what can you do and what do we need to provide you so you're in a position to immediately transition your workforce from selling cheeseburgers to anybody driving through the drive through to handing them uh, a prepackaged uh, set of meals for kids? What do we have to do? How how can we plan that? How can we locate right now those locations that can make that conversion? That wasn't done. Some real, real potential there. Yes. And like you said, useful for a lot of different opportunities, not just this pandemic. Um, Maxine, you're next. 
Hi, um, I'm from St. Louis, sort of the heartland, and we actually do have a really good food bank. The woman who runs it's an ex-military person, and she's really streamlined the process. There's a lot of things going, so I was really glad when we hired her. I thought she would do a good job. But my question is, if the president can go and do a, uh, the production act to get and for the meatpacking, even though there are people there that are sick or asymptomatic that may, I don't know if that affects our food or not, could he do the same for schools and get the schools back to school so the parents could go back to work? So the food, the farmers could actually deliver um, food to the schools. So it would solve many problems in that one particular situation. Um, I, I don't think the president can do that because I think state governors who basically uh, have control over the school systems in their states would object to that on the theory that Th this would be a breeding ground for the second wave of the virus and would further exacerbate the healthcare pressures that states have faced already. Um, I think that's why the kids have been taken out of school. That's why many, most governors have said, um, you're not going to back to school until the fall. Uh, and when they go back to school, the question will be, do they go back to school the way they did before the virus? Or are we going to have a completely different set of rules? Are, they, are the, the desks going to be separated? Are they no longer going to be able to eat in the cafeteria? Will they be able to eat in their rooms? You know, there's just a whole series of, of decisions that school districts are now trying to decide how much of it's going to be online. Uh, I think the one thing that's going to come out of this is that many, many parents are going to be a bit more understanding of the challenges that teachers have in keeping <laughs> children's uh, children six or eight hours a day. We had a speaker yesterday who said that. Um, he was speaking about college students and how you know college students could have stayed in college and uh, perhaps uh, been fine, you know, the or at least go back because they're young and healthy. The same is true for young children. I know that many live, especially poor kids, live in multi generation homes. There could be a difference, but I think I don't know whether no labels can look at this, but I think that's one of those things to that's really going to slow down the whole economy. Is if kids can't go back to school and there aren't summer, you know, ways for them, then the parents can't go back to work no matter who it is. I don't know how they're managing in the meat packing plants in the cities there, but it's, it's a, you know, a domino effect here and yeah. it starts with the children. Um, and I didn't realize that I didn't think about the connection of children and food to the farmers and how, how impactful, negatively impactful. Thank you for sharing that. It really makes us think about it in a whole different way. Bill Galston, you're next. Yeah. Well, first of all, a comment on the preceding question. I think a pretty compelling case could be made that the president of the United States simply does not have a const the constitutional authority to reopen schools in a state or a school district. It's not simply a political question. It's a constitutional and legal question. Uh, under our system, states have sovereignty over a wide range of activities that was settled by John Marshall two centuries ago, and we haven't revisited that. So I think that's not a promising avenue. But let me but let me get to my question. And I don't I I don't mean to sound like an ultranationalist or a conspiracy theorist. Uh, but while we're revisiting the question of global supply chains versus control over our own productive processes, I learned recently that, for example, Smithfield's foods, which has been identified as a major major source of hotspot plants for COVID-19, was purchased by a large Chinese corporation seven years ago. Uh, if there's any country that ought to know about the dangers of COVID-19 and to take very quick, decisive action to present its spread in packing plants, I would have thought that it would be the Chinese. Uh, is it appropriate or major sections of the U.S. food chain to be owned by the Chinese? That's my question to you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, there is a process in place. I can't go into, into large detail about it because it, uh, I'd probably be violating several federal laws, but there is a process in which those kinds of transactions are closely monitored and closely reviewed by a, a number of federal officials to determine whether or not there's a risk to our national security as a result. Uh, in that particular circumstance, the determination was made that there was not such a risk. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know that the ownership of the 
Smithfield plant was, uh, I don't know that that, to me, what, what happened is the Smithfield folks just decided that, that I think they felt the same way some of our political leaders felt, which was that ah, this thing is not, it's going to blow over. This thing's not a big deal. We don't have to worry about it. And the reality was we, they should have been on the very first, the very first person got sick. They should have been thinking about this. They didn't. So now they're in, they're in, they're in a tough spot. And it was appalling to me that one of the chief executive officers of one of the major companies, uh, not owned by the Chinese, said, well, you know, it's really the culture of the workers that's responsible. Well, okay, you're using immigrant labor and you're paying not great wages and, you, and you, you're, you're questioning why people live multi-gener- in multi-generational homes. Well, sorry. I mean, that's how they get along. That's how they financially get along because they don't make enough money to have, you know, six different houses, they all live together. So yes, there's going to be significant exposure here. And you should have been thinking about that at a time to spread out the, the workers, to slow the lines down, to provide protective equipment. But you didn't do any of that. And so it's not surprising that we have, have the problem we have today. So I think they have to accept some responsibility. And I'm a bit troubled by the notion that now the next relief package for, for states that are going to be in real trouble financially is going to be held up because uh, some folks want to give um, liability protection to companies that didn't take care of their workers and didn't pay attention to the warning signs. I mean, is that, you know, how's that work? So I don't know the Chinese ownership of Smithfield. I'm not as bothered by that as I am about the fact that nobody paid any attention to the warning signs until it was way too late. And now they're basically blaming the workers. Uh, you know, they, they, some of these companies literally offered incentives for people to come to work when they were sick. I mean, it's just, what are you thinking? You know, it's just crazy. Well, it's going to be interesting because I think um, the other side of that argument or not the other side of the argument, I think a, a, an argument around when guidance was provided by the CDC or by the FDA about how to do certain things, if that guidance was followed, um, you know, should there still be liability for having people come to work if it was deemed by the state and the federal government as essential workers? And so I think there's a place to land. Yeah, yeah, I don't, make, makes sense. I, don't, I don't have any problem if you, if they basically, you know, were consistent with the guidelines, they followed the guidelines, they were proactive, they were aggressive. I don't have any problem with giving them some relief. And in fact, I don't think they have liability. But if they ignored the guidelines, and essentially, you know, just tried to generate as much product as possible because the, the money was pretty good at the time. I do have a problem with that. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, Stamen Ogilvy, you're next. Uh, Mr. Secretary, we tend to think about agribusiness as a lump of production, but of course there are uh, the AMDs of the world and the family farms of the world. And how would you distinguish between appropriate policy for the little guys and the big guys. Well, just to put the finer point on your point, uh, just generally, if you talk about the food and agriculture industry as a single industry, that would include the farmers, the workers, the retail, the fast food, it's 28% of America's workforce and it's 20% of America's economy. So the food and ag industry, it's not, it's not surprising that when it gets disrupted, it, it, the whole economy gets impacted and affected by this, right? I'll give you one example of, of big and small, and, and, and I think a mistake that's been made in, in the current system, and I'll go into sort of detail. Uh, there, in, in the farm bills, in the bills that basically uh, uh, have passed Congress to provide support and help for farmers generally, year to year, uh, that, that provides some degree of protection against price declines that were unanticipated, uh, disasters that, that occurred, uh, you know, a, a tornado, that kind of flood, that kind of thing. It makes some sense to distinguish between big and small so that the benefits that you provide uh, go to the people that needed it the most and the folks that are pretty well off, maybe they don't need as much help, right? So as a result, what you see in, in the farm bills is a cap 
on how much money somebody can receive and who qualifies to receive the money. And after you are worth a certain amount or you make a certain amount, you don't get any benefit. Under normal circumstances, I understand this, the, the philosophy behind that, and I, for the most part, supportive of it. But in this circumstance, it doesn't make sense to me because it doesn't. This thing has discriminated against big and small. This thing has has impacted every single entity. And in the reality is that eighty percent of our food is probably produced by twenty percent of our farmers. So if you basically say to the 20% of our farmers producing 80% of the food, sorry, guys, because you have had success in the past and, and you've had some degree of, of, even though this has destroyed your business, you're out of luck. And all those people that depend on you and your family operation, it's too bad. We're just not going to help you because you were successful in the past. That doesn't make sense to me on, this, on the level of this pandemic. It makes sense to me. Under normal farm bill, got to support during the year kind of programs. But the Department of Agriculture, for some reason, <coughs> imposed uh, caps on the amount of assistance and help going to large scale and, and successful farm, and pre previously successful farming operations. Ag, and I, I asked the question why is ag in this circumstance the only industry with caps like that? I mean, do we do that to the airline folks? Do we do that to the, you know, to the uh, uh, entertainment? Do, do we do it to the theater owners? Do we do it to the restaurant guy? Do we cap anybody else? Why would we, why would we, in this circumstance, why would we discriminate against those people who are the most efficient, most effective, most productive? Why do we, why do we penalize them for that in this circumstance? So I think to me, I think you have to look at the circumstances, you have to look at the magnitude of the problem, and you always have to be conscious of the level of destruction to the food system before you decide they're gonna be winners and losers and people who get a little bit more or a little bit less. I don't know. That's a terrific perspective and I thank you. Uh, okay, we're winding down. Uh, Mel Gray next. Unmute. Um, myself, uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you very much for your comments. Uh, being an um, ignorant city dweller, I, I really don't know much about the farm economy and appreciate the uh, background. Um, I, I, one of the thoughts that struck me was your, your last comment uh, struck me as having a, a remarkable parallel, which is the PPP program where the policy uh, decisions are basically uh, are based on ideas of, of quantity or size and where the, the financial aid was guided by arbitrary size uh, uh, criteria. And so I think that's an interesting perspective because our policymakers should think about, uh, hopefully think about things in, uh, in, in more dimensions than just that because I, I think the same thing applies to the uh, so-called PPP program, where we've, had, where we've had a lot of political dialogue and a lot of uh, sturm und drang. Um, beyond that, my question relates to, I read, I think this morning, that there are 130 million people in the world who are critical on food. Um, and um, while we, uh, it seems to me, it, it, there's, there's a must uh, relating to solving uh, the, the, the problem with respect to uh, Americans who are critical on food. My question is, what policy positions should the, should the United States take to A, help solve that enormous global problem, as long as we have a 30% food surplus, while we support our farm economy? Well, uh, that's why uh, there are programs like Food for Peace and Food for Prosperity uh, operated through the United States Department of uh, Agency for, Independent, for International Development, USAID, through the State Department. Um, uh, there's never been a better time and a more important time for us to basically provide that opportunity that you mentioned, and I'll tell you why. <clears throat> We, we are in a very significant competition. I think many of us felt comfortable when the Berlin Wall came down. We thought, okay, that's it. We, democracy, free markets, we win. Uh, communist, communism loses. 
uh, Soviet Union gone, no problem, no more competition, it's just us. Well, the Chinese have a different view of this. And I think the Chinese are now basically trying to make the case that in a day and an age of incredibly rapid change uh, and significant risks, that there are two forms of government, two forms of approaching these, this, this pace of change. There's the democratic approach and there's the authoritative approach. And the authoritative approach, they, they are gonna contend for many developing countries works better. It can get you the relief faster. It can, it can target the relief more quickly and more specifically. And it's a better system for this 21st century than our system was maybe in the 20th century. And for, so as a result, what they've done during this virus is that they've begun to go out to all of these developing countries and say, you need ventilators, you need masks, you need equipment, you need this, you need that. Chinese will be more than happy to provide it to you. Uh, need infrastructure, we got our, our Belt and Road Initiative. Um, they're going into the void that we're creating by leaving international organizations uh, and, and leading the leader, leaving the leadership of international organizations and they're filling the void that we're creating, which provides them uh, alliances, friendships, connections, which makes it more and more difficult over time for the United States to make the case that democracy and the way we think, we think, the way we look at things is the best way to approach uh, the, you know, the global situation. So it is, I think, absolutely essential and should be a component of this effort that the US Department, uh, State Department, USAID, be given a substantial amount of money to basically purchase bulk commodities, package them in those bags that say product of the USA and get them to people in some of these developing countries that are gonna be absolutely devastated by this virus because they don't have the healthcare infrastructure to deal with it. Um, and we could start uh, even uh, working with our neighbor to the South, our friends in Mexico, that's for many commodities in America, that's the number one market. Uh, and maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not uh, disrupting those markets by giving product away to Mexico, but maybe it's working with them uh, to provide products uh, in, in Central and, and South America, working in our own neighborhood, if you will, and then focusing on places in Africa and Asia. But uh, it's a very important question you ask, and it's something I don't think gets a much, much attention because we are so domestically focused now. Uh, but we pay a price by ignoring it. I think we've got time for one more, Liz and Nancy. I think Paul Murad, if you're still on, Paul. Yeah, I am. <clears throat> Can you hear me? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, thank you, uh, Secretary, for your time today. I have two questions. One, a quick one. I was just curious, whose bust is uh, behind your left shoulder? That's one. <laughs> <laughs> and two, um, more importantly, you know, things are changing with the pandemic. Uh, there was an article in Bloomberg yesterday talked about the fact that Avocado sales are up, citrus sales are up, meat sales are down. Uh, people are eating differently, less meat-based, less dairy. Uh, so, you know, things are changing now and, and they were changing, you know, already for a while. Just as of January, I personally became plant-based. Um, how are you counseling and leading your dairy farmers and others in the agriculture industry to adjust to that new reality that's only going to, you know, grow more so uh, diverse and uh, how do we also coexist, you know, people who are plant-based like myself and others and, and people who are meat eaters um, in terms of on the bigger picture of, you know, how do we get, for example, dairy industry not fighting coconut and almond uh, uh, milk producers from using the word milk and, and or if someone criticizes a big food uh, who doesn't you know, have risk of, of, of being sued or, or go to jail like Oprah Winfrey did back in the day. Like, how do we coexist and, 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 and be more peaceful in that sense? And adjust, and how do your you know your constituents adjust to this uh, reality of people's food choices and diet choices are, are so different now and continue to do so? Well, the first question is a lot easier to answer um, <laughs> than the second question. Uh, but as a, as a preface to answering the question about the the bust of George Washington Carver, I will say that you need to be very conscious of your background mm -hmm. if you are participate in any kind of uh, Zoom activity <laughs> or FaceTime because there are people with apparently too much time on their hands who are now rating backgrounds. Uh, <laughs> recently got a seven out of 10, so I'm pretty proud of that. And it's a large part because of George Washington Carver. All right. Um, for, first of all, let me just say, let me respond to the question about milk because people may not understand why dairy producers 
get upset uh, with uh, with this notion of almond beverage being called almond milk. First of all, there are like only four almonds in almond milk uh, and a quart of milk. I mean, it's not like there's a ton of almonds in that milk. There's a lot of other <laughs> stuff in it. But the reality is that it doesn't nutritionally match up with the nutritional bang for the buck you get with real milk. And so essentially what people are doing is they're taking a brand, the milk brand, which most people believe, and I think with some justification, has a, a healthy nutrition basis, nine essential vitamins, et cetera, and basically piggybacking off that brand and selling a product that doesn't actually meet that nutritional level. I think the dairy industry probably would have less of a complaint about this if what was being peddled as milk could, could say, we have as much vitamin D, we have as much potassium, we have as much calcium, we have as much this and that, but they, they don't. So I think that's why, that's why you see the pushback on, on, on the brain. Uh, and I think that's an important consideration. And I think people in business should understand that. You know, if, you, if you've spent time building up a brand and all of a sudden somebody takes your brand, you know, you, you get kind of irritated about that, I think. Most people do. Um, and so that's, that's the basis of that. Um, secondly, it, it actually, dairy consumption has not gone down. Um, the consumption of fluid milk has gone down uh, because there are a multitude of alter alternatives, not just the the plant-based beverages, but also uh, the sports drinks and the, the fortified water and, and all of that uh, has created an enormous competitive circumstance. And I think the response for the dairy industry needs to be and has begun to be, okay, fine. Then we, we're not, we don't need to disparage so much the, 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 uh, the competition. We need to embrace it. Um, and we need to embrace it by, by innovation. So uh, there's, a pro there's a product called Fair Life, uh, which is a milk product. Uh, it's lactose-free. Uh, they figured out a way through ultra-filtration to reduce the level of sugar. Uh, they reduce the level of fat. They increase significantly the amount of protein. Um, and um, the result of that is a product that tastes great and is better for you. And Coca-Cola just recently, in essence, purchased that beverage. Um, uh, and, and they have a, a sports drink that is built on that, on that profile as well. So innovation is, is one way that I think the dairy industry is beginning to respond. We are eating more dairy. I mean, we're eating a lot of cheese. Uh, we're, eating, we're consuming a lot of yogurt. Uh, uh, low, you know, some of the folks who are uh, into gyms and, and uh, uh, fitness are consuming whey protein uh, in, in shakes and in uh, smoothies and things of that nature. So all of that, basically, if you look at all of that across the board, dairy consumption is actually going up in the country uh, and will continue to go up not only here but around the world. Um, I do think that it's important for the dairy industry, and I think they are embracing this notion, that they need to make the case that they can produce milk without harming the environment. Uh, and I think probably more than any other industry in agriculture today, including the folks who grow fruits and vegetables, there's probably more work being done by the dairy industry on sustainability and getting, getting to a, a net zero emission future in a relatively short period of time. They believe that with the right land conservation practices, with the right water reuse practices, with um, uh, proper reduction of methane through feed additives, which is possible, and capture of methane and repurposing it into fuel and energy, and taking manure and essentially separating the solids from the liquids, reclaiming the liquids for use in the, in the dairy operation, and taking the solids and at a minimum, pelletizing them so that we don't overapply manure on land that creates water quality issues, but we're now in a position to literally package, store, and ship that fertilizer all over the country and all over the world where it's most needed to precisely uh, uh, inject it into the ground, better soil, a new product, new manufacturing jobs in rural places. That's the future. Uh, and I think if it, it, as dairy and as ag generally embraces that kind of sustainability future, 
several things happen. One, the brand of, of, of farming and agriculture changes. The, the conversation in the country changes about agriculture. Uh, two, you create multiple revenue opportunities for farmers so they become more resilient. And three, you create new manufacturing jobs in rural places that I think will spread out more of the economic wealth and we might not have as quite, quite as much uh, um, angst uh, be, uh, and divide between red and blue uh, as we have. U.S. agriculture has been hit hard by this virus. As Secretary Vilsank explains, school closures have decreased the demand for milk. Restaurant closures have hit demand for produce and meat. Secretary Vilsack suggests two courses of action moving forward. First, we must determine a way for those who have lost their jobs to purchase more through additional Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program Benefits, or SNAP. And second, we need to improve the disconnect between the demand of food banks and the supply of retailers. To do this, financial incentives should be given to farmers to donate rather than dump produce. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 